when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with award-winning author Alan Gratz. Let's find out about his writing process and his newest novel for middle grade readers, Two Degrees, as well as his love of all things history. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. And hey, I am middle grade author Alan Gratz. The titles of yours that I've read so far are Allies, Ground Zero, and Refugees, which all of them were fantastic. Um, can you introduce our listeners to your title coming out in October, Two Degrees, and how will you be celebrating its book birthday? Yeah, uh, so Two Degrees, very excited about this one, comes out October 4th of 2022 for those folks who are listening in the future. And um, uh, it is a story about climate change. It is the tale of four different kids in three different parts of North America, uh, all experiencing different climate change disasters. And um, all, all because uh, we are creeping up on two degrees of temperature rise from the beginning of the industrial era. So I've got a girl in California who is trying to survive wildfire uh, with her horse. I've got two boys in Churchill, Manitoba, up in Canada, who are trying to escape uh, a polar bear who has come onto the land uh, because the sea ice hasn't formed in time, and uh, they're trying to escape the polar bear. The last story is about a girl in Miami, Florida, who is trying to survive a hurricane along with her neighbor's dog. And I weave all three of those stories together and find connections between all of those kids. All the stories take place concurrently. Because when I was first doing the research for this, I realized that there was actually a time in 2020, I think it was, when one in three Americans was going through a climate-related disaster all at the same time. And I realized that I could put all these happening at the same time because that's really what's going on in the world right now. But that's two degrees. Uh, I, I'm not great about uh, the, with my elevator pitch yet because you're you're one of the first talks that I've done about two degrees. So forgive me if I ramble a little bit. What am I doing to help celebrate the birthday? So we're we're doing two weeks of virtual events. So uh, I'll be doing two a days, like one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And rather than going and doing these in person, both because of COVID and you know just the the logistics of it all it's easier to kind of reach the kids where they are in school. And so uh, I'll be appearing virtually in the morning, in the afternoon, during the school day, and uh, in conjunction with bookstores around the country. We did this before for my Ground Zero tour, and that happened in the height of the pandemic. And um, it was very successful. Uh, we had some, uh, some virtual events where we figured we had like 10,000 kids watching in classrooms in a particular area, like in Chicago or LA. So we figure it's a really great way to reach a lot of kids and, um, and get the word out about the book. So I will celebrate uh, here in my office with my headphones on uh, sitting in front of a computer. Um, but uh, it will be a celebration because this book has been a long time coming. That's really cool. I love how many kids you're going to be able to reach with the classroom or the virtual visits. 
And I wanted to make a note with um, both Stephen and I, we started at the same library and now we're at different locations, but we were in um, Bay County in 2018 for Hurricane Michael, which was a Cat 5 hurricane. And right after that was all the wildfires happening out in um, California. So we can relate to two degrees. I am looking forward to reading it. Yeah, you read the news and you you see flooding in one area. You see um, you know hurricanes hitting another place. Right now, uh, California, as we speak, California's got wildfires and a hurricane hitting it. That's rather unusual. You know, we've got sea level rise. Uh, we've got droughts, desertification. We've got forced migration because of of heat and crop failure. There are so many different ways that climate change is affecting us and not just here in the United States, but all around the world, of course, and really kind of figuring out which of those stories I was going to tell was one of the biggest challenges for Two Degrees. You've been described as a social thriller writer. Uh, So what exactly does that mean and what goes into writing those type of books? Yeah, this is a term I, I really love and, and have embraced. I first heard the term while listening to a podcast. The, it, was, it was an interview with Jordan Peele, the writer and director of Get Out and Nope. And, and, and uh, he's really great. And, and he referred to his own work as social thrillers, movies that would thrill his audiences, but also have a social message to them. And as soon as I heard him talking about that, it kind of clicked for me. And I was like, oh, that kind of described, I was looking for a way to describe what I was already doing with books and to find a way to sort of put, write that on a, a post-it and stick it to my computer and say, this is what I'm always doing from now on. And so I've sort of used social thrillers as my, my mantra, like my little watchword or my niche on the shelf. I want to write books that are thrillers that kids can't put down, that are page turners, that, that grab them right from chapter one and hang on to them all the way through so they, you know, they can't resist it. But I also want to have some social element to it, too, where it leaves them with questions. It, it, it leaves them thinking about things. Do I have all the answers? No, I wish I did. But at least by asking those questions and posing those questions to kids, I hope to get them thinking about it. I, I feel like I was a pretty oblivious kid. I was really lucky in that I didn't have to worry about a whole lot of stuff when I was a kid. And it was really only as I got to college and became an adult that I really began to understand all the things that were going on in the world that I wanted to, to be involved with and that I wanted to help change or, or, or help solidify, you know, whatever it was that was going on in the world. And I, I, I was really lucky to live a pretty oblivious life as a kid. And there are a lot of kids who don't have that opportunity. And, uh, and I want to recognize those and, and, and show that experience um, and say, I see you. And for the kids who are oblivious, I would love for them to read my books and say, oh my gosh, Look at all this stuff that's going on in the world. Maybe I should start thinking about this and caring about this now. And I think we're seeing that already. Kids don't need my books for that. You know, the world is coming at them more than ever before as middle as middle schoolers. So I, I hope that my books help them find a way into these different difficult situations and, and think about them, talk about them with their friends, talk about them with their teachers, talk about them with their families. Even the way you break things down, it may, it clarified some of the events, even for me, even reading Ground Zero, for example, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I can I can piece things together better as well. And then Two Degrees is a little different because it's, it's happening right now. It's not a historical fiction. So what is your goal for, you know, um, our generation now to make an impact? And then what should we be doing right now? 
Yeah, this is a huge question, right? Like, what in the world do we do about this? It's it's come a long way. Are we are we so far into climate change that it's irreversible? No, thank goodness. Uh, have we have we gone very deep into it? Yes. And and the the really scary part of it is that even with the the Paris Accords of a couple of years ago and the decision to sort of try and cap everything at one one and a half degrees of temperature rise since the beginning of the industrial era. It's great that we all acknowledge that, but the fact is we're still going up. We haven't even stopped the rise, let alone reversed it. So we have a whole lot of work to do if we don't want things to get out of control pretty quickly. So what I'm hoping to do with this book, you're right, it's not historical. Uh, I actually thought about writing a historical angle to this and maybe going back to the beginning of the industrial era or even putting something in the 1970s with the beginning of the Earth Day movement and environmentalism becomes really powerful movement. I thought about doing different eras as I've done before in other books, but ultimately I settled on right here and right now because of all those things I talked about earlier. We've got so many things happening right now that we don't have to go into the past. And we also don't have to write science fiction about what it'll be like in the future because we can already see the effects right now. Okay, so what can we do? Obviously, all the little things that we talk about on a daily basis, like recycling and and turning off our lights and watching our water usage and everything, those are all really important. But even if we all continued to do those, it wouldn't be enough. And that's part of the big message of this book is that we have to keep doing those things. They all matter. But what we really need is fundamental change on a on a community level, on a government level, on a national level, and that kids can be a part of that. I think when I was a kid, I I often felt like the adults were living some sort of other world in some other world and some other life than me. And I felt like I had no power. And I think what kids are realizing today is that they do have power. Their voice matters. And no, they can't vote yet. Not yet, but they will. They'll grow up and they'll be voters, but they can make change even before that. They can get out and they can march and protest. Greta Thunberg's an amazing example of somebody who is young and has made an enormous difference in the world by using her voice. So I, I, I challenge kids in the book, what is one big thing that you can do to help bring attention to climate change? Or what's one big thing that you can do to, to, to try and fix this situation? Maybe you're a great communicator and you can tell people about climate change. Maybe you're a great artist and you can do graphics or art that, that brings attention to it. Uh, maybe you're a musician and you can write songs that, that make people care about it. But I realized when I was writing this book, I was like, what can I do, me, Alan Gratz, about climate change? And I do all the things. We have solar panels. You know, we watch our water usage. And we've gotten rid of all the grass in our yard. You know, we're doing we're doing all the things that we can that, that that you read about to try and help the earth. But what's a big thing I could do? And I thought, well, the big thing I could do is write a book about climate change, right? I mean, I'm an author. What if I take one of my one of my books, a book that'll take me a year and a half to write, that'll be my big book of the year, and I make it about climate change? That's what I can do to help bring attention to it. So I challenge kids in the same way. What are you good at? What are your skills and what can you bring to this challenge of, of climate change? Maybe you're an incredible science. Uh, you've got a science brain or a math brain. I do not. But maybe you can become a scientist and, and help us actually solve it in some way. I don't know. but And, and that's, that's where I get back to me not having all the answers. But I do have a question. And my question is, what is one big thing you can do uh, to, to help fix climate change? And, and I hope that that answer is 
Well, I think that answer will be different for every kid who reads the book. I've got a, uh, I've got two kids. One of them just turned a teen this year. And so the reason how this, us being here with you started was because my son hates reading. Reading sucks. <laughs> but there's, there's two authors that, you know, when, when it comes to, you know, I'm going to read, if you're going to force me to read something, do they have anything going on? Adam Caesar with Clown in the Cornfield was number one. And, and okay. <laughs> the bookshelf right underneath that one has pretty much, it, it, we're missing a couple that we're having to go back and get now, <laughs> but your name fills up an entire shelf in his little library there. So you are a writer that gets kids, that kids get kind of thing. You've got book clubs that are centered around you with schools. You have fan mails from classrooms, from libraries, from et cetera. So what is it like having a fan base that is from that demographic? No, it's awesome. And uh, tell your son, was it? Uh, Tell your son, uh, thank you for being a fan. I really appreciate it. It's a huge deal to me. Uh, and, And when I started writing for kids, uh, I had all kinds of goals. You know, I wanted to make a living at it. You know, I would love to win awards. The biggest goal that I've always had and the, the number one thing that I said, if I could just do this, that would be enough. And that was to have kids read my books. I just, I just wanted readers. I wanted kid readers. And that's who I was writing for. And I wanted to be, I wanted them to love my books. And none of their other stuff mattered as much. You know, I, I would like to eat and pay my bills, but... But it was, but but the number one thing was I I'm writing for kids. I want them to love reading my books. And so it's a huge deal for me to hear that from you. And and I do, I I hear this on on social media. I get letters from kids saying, I I, I hate reading, but I love reading your books, or I didn't read a book until I picked up your books and now I've read a ton of books. I, I love, love, love emails like that. And the truth is, I wasn't a huge reader when I was a kid. I did read books, but not not at the clip that my wife did or like a lot of the librarians that I meet did, you know, like maybe you guys uh, were reading books all the time when you were kids. I don't know. But I, I read a little bit, but I was also playing outside or, or coming up with adventures with my action figures or playing kickball in the street or building a fort or playing video games, you know, watching television and movies. There were so many things that pulled my attention this way and that way. And books were just one of them. And so I've always remembered being kid and having all those different things that, that pull my attention and remembering that when I write books for kids that I'm competing with all that. I am not a kill your TV kind of guy. I'm not a kill your video games kind of guy. I love all that stuff. So I just want to write books that are, that are on, on that level, that compete with those things. So that, so that if a kid's thinking, do I read this Alan Gratz book or do I play Minecraft tonight? They, they're probably going to play Minecraft, but, but at least they thought about it for a second and they thought maybe I'll go read that Alan Gratz book. So I really do think of it that way, though, that and as I said before, with the with the thriller aspect, it's always been very important to me to make my books the kind of book that a kid can't put down. And um, I I want I'm writing to entertain first. Yes. uh, With two degrees, I've got a big climate change message with Ground Zero. I had a lot of history and about, you know, uh, the the, what got us to the place of 9-11 and and then what happened after 9-11 with Refugee. I obviously want to talk about what it means to be a refugee and, 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 and encourage kids to think about their own responses to that situation in the present day. So I have, I definitely have goals beyond entertainment, but my number one thing, whenever I write a book is what's the story and, and is it exciting and interesting? If I don't have an exciting and interesting angle on something, 
then I just don't write that book because that's my number one thing is I, I want kids to have a whole shelf full of the books. And then I hope the result after that is once they've read it and, and, and eaten it up, that they're still thinking about it afterward. And touching back on, on what you kind of just said there about, uh, you know, the, the writing goals of, of getting a bestseller list. When two degrees comes out, unless something shocking happens, the odds are you will have not one, not two, but probably three books on the bestseller list at the same time, one of which has which will have been there for over 154 weeks, another one that's been over there for probably uh, right at 54 weeks. So, I mean, what, what other kind of writing goals can you have for yourself at the time <laughs> when, when you're potentially going to be the mass name that's in that bestseller list? Right. Thanks for noticing. And <laughs> um, yes, uh, li listen, you never know what's going to happen. And fall's a big time for books when a lot of big books come out. But uh, fingers crossed, yes, A Refugee has been on the list almost four years. And that's an astounding number and something I never even dreamed of uh, when I started writing books. And, and when Refugee came out, I just hoped that people would read it and care and, and, and talk about the book. I had no idea that it would become, it's become something, it has a life of its own, honestly, which is fabulous. Uh, Ground Zero, I've been so thrilled by the response to that. Uh, it hit the list when it came out, went off the list, kind of came back a couple of times, and now it's camped out there, which is amazing and, and, and says to me that, that teachers and parents are buying that book to share with their kids, which is really amazing. Yeah, so when Two Degrees comes out uh, a few weeks from now, uh, from your lips to the New York Times <laughs> bestseller list, God's ears, maybe, maybe uh, it'll list and, and the other two will be on there. That would be quite something and definitely frameable. <laughs> uh, do you have any other kind of writing goals that you're, you're shooting for based off this? Oh, right. So, um, you know, I, I, I think most writers would love to see their stuff leap from the page to the, to the screen. I haven't had any TV or movie adaptations of anything that I've done. I'd love to see that. It's unfortunately really not up to me. I have to wait for somebody in Hollywood to, to find one of my books and then go through the whole process of script and, and finding a director and finding actors and that sort of thing. The closest I've ever gotten with that is Refugee. Uh, that book was optioned and is still under option and uh, got a screenplay written for it by the screenwriter who wrote Bridge of Spies, the Spielberg thriller that came out a few years ago now. Uh, the, the script is great. I've read it. It's amazing. They didn't set it in space. They didn't cut any of the characters out, you know what I mean? And we were all set to go out and try to find a director and try to find actors. And then guess what happened? Uh, COVID happened. It's the same thing that shut everything else down. And so um, that led to a whole domino effect of all things, a bunch of things that didn't happen when they were supposed to. Things are just kind of getting ramped back up. And maybe, again, fingers crossed, something, something happens with that. I would love to see that. That would be amazing. I've always wanted to write for TV or film, but really the books are doing great. And so there's no reason to stop doing that. So, um, and I love what I do. So um, it, it's, uh, you know, it's not like I'm looking to get out of kids books. I love it. So um, I'm, I'm kind of staying the course there, but uh, I also have always wanted to do a graphic novel and I'm super thrilled that I um, have gotten that opportunity uh, I, this, I may be jumping on a question you had for You're later fine. on. We, but, we will uh, jump right into this right now. Great. So let's, let's talk All right. about we, Captain we'll America. Go into, yeah, we'll segue into Captain America. <laughs> so um, uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe, I saw that Scholastic had signed a deal with Marvel to do middle grade 
superhero graphic novels, uh, original ones uh, that, that Scholastic was producing. So they were focusing on this, a lot of the younger characters, Miles Morales, Ms. Marvel, uh, Shuri from Black Panther, and they're great. They, 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 they've been focusing on these kids. And I thought, oh my gosh, this could be my chance. I'm published with Scholastic. Maybe I could pitch them a, a, a Marvel story and see if I could write one. And I thought, well, what, what character though would I do that would also fit in with all the other stuff that I already write for Scholastic? Because I didn't want to go too far afield. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. I write a lot of books about World War II. What about Captain America and his sidekick Bucky fighting in World War II? And so I cooked up a, a, a synopsis, uh, sent it to my agent. She was thrilled with it. She, we sent it to, to uh, Scholastic. They were thrilled with it. Marvel was thrilled with it. And uh, here I am a year and a half, two years later, and uh, I've got a book called Captain America, The Ghost Army, a graphic novel coming out in January, uh, barring any, um, you know, sh- uh, any, any containers washing off of ships or anything into the ocean. So, uh, yeah, Captain America, The Ghost Army. I am super stoked about this. Uh, I love comic books. I have since I was a kid. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Captain America character. And, uh, and I got to go back to something I've written a lot about, which is World War II. So it's Captain America and Bucky fighting against, uh, well, they meet the, what is the, the uh, literal ghost army. The United States had a, a, a unit called the ghost army that was set up to fool the enemy. Uh, it was made up of artists and musicians mm-hmm. and sa- like sound engineers and magicians, painters. Like they had a whole bunch of creative folks, advertising executives who knew how to write. They had a bunch of creative folks and they threw them all into, into one group. And they said, your job is to trick the enemy into thinking we have more troops in some place than we do, or that we're going to invade this place when we're going to actually invade over here. And so they would make up fake tanks and fake airplanes and put them out in fields. And they would set up fake army tents with fake laundry hanging on, on the wires. And they would record the sounds of, of armies on the move and play those from loudspeakers and that sort of thing. It was really, really creative and, and interesting stuff. And I'd always wanted to get this real actual U.S. ghost army into a book, but I, I never found a way into it until I thought about Captain America. So they meet up with the ghost army. And then of course, because it's a superhero comic, they fight against a, a real ghost army as well. I mean, like a like ghosts, you know, like resurrected dead soldiers who were brought back as ghosts to fight. So the real life ghost army fights my supernatural ghost army in Captain America the ghost army. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. The artist's name is Brent Schoonover. He's fantastic. He lives in Minnesota. Uh, and uh, he and I are hoping to do a lot of events around that when it comes out in January to let people know about it. I'm, I'm a huge Captain America fan myself. And I awesome. grew, grew up on like uh, the DC, like fight uh, haunted tanks and all that kind of stuff kind of thing. So it's, it bridges all the, all the fun stuff that I love. <laughs> nice. nice. Um, this is not the yeah. first intellectual property that you've handled for somebody you, you've done some star trek in the past so what yeah. is what is it uh like uh working with those type of properties where it's not your character and how how you have to handle that yeah i'm i'm a fan of a number of different things and i've gotten to write for a couple of them one the one you're talking about is called starfleet academy the assassination game and it is a young adult star trek novel uh that came out uh, i guess around 
2010, something like that. The, it's based on the reboot, the J.J. Abrams reboot, the Kelvin universe. Uh, so this is another situation where I saw somebody was doing young adult Star Trek novels. And I was like, wait, that's two parts of my life crashing together, you know, like chocolate and peanut butter. And I said, I, I got to try and, and, and submit something for this. So I, I wrote up a, a synopsis, handed it off to my agent and, and, and got a gig writing a Star Trek novel, which was a, definitely a bucket list kind of thing for me as well. And I've been really lucky that both of my experiences writing for IP, intellectual property, um, have been super great. The Star Trek folks, it, it, was, it was a fun process. And, and when you go into it, the number one thing you have to remember is it's not yours, as you pointed out, right? So you have to realize that, that you're playing in somebody else's sandbox and that, that you can't really have everything all the, all the time, all the way that you want it. You've got to play within the rules. So, uh, you know, Star Trek had rules like, you know, the, the, and these are kind of rules across the board for Star Trek. Don't add any family members to any of the characters' lives that we don't know about. You know, don't kill anybody off. Don't marry anybody off. You know, you can't you can't make huge changes to these characters' lives because they have to be the same person at the beginning of the book as they are at the end. And that's a real challenge because as a writer, you like to see your characters grow and change over the course of a story. And um, most of the time in comic books, TV shows, our characters never grow and change. They're the exact same season after season after season. That's why we love to watch them. But, uh, you know, there, there are things like when I wrote the Star Trek novel, I wanted to put the Klingons into it. And uh, I wrote up a synopsis and I had the Klingons as, as uh, they, they weren't exactly the villains. They were, you know, they were red herring villains. And I put them in there and they came back and they said, you can't use the Klingons. Because in the movies, we hadn't seen the Klingons yet. The first movie of the new J.J. Abrams reboot was just out. The second one, they said, we think we're going to put the Klingons in there. So we don't want you to write anything that would define them for our world. We want to do that in the movie. Okay, so I take the Klingons out. I put in something else. That's one of the things where you just kind of have to roll with it. You can't, you can't get too fixed on something. You can't die on any hills. You know, I mean, you really got to just um, let them say what the rules are and go with it. With Marvel, they were fantastic. So right from the start, they, they said, if you want to put, put in as many Easter eggs and references as you want to, to other stuff. Now, one, their, their one big caveat was it all had to be comic book related and not movie related, mm -hmm. right? So my versions of the characters in, in this book are all based on the comic book versions, not the film versions, which can vary slightly. You know, uh, sometimes people have a little bit different powers, or sometimes they change the the race of a character, you know, to 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 cast a different actor, which is awesome. But they want to make sure that the comic books have a continuity and that the films have their own continuity. But but otherwise, they said uh, besides making it match the comics, go wild. And I did. I had a ton of fun. I brought in Doctor Strange villains into it. Um, I made references to the to Wanda Maximoff. You know, I, I was. I was pulling in this and that, and it's all Captain America fighting ghosts in World War II. But I, I managed to squeeze in. I, I think I got Howard Stark, Tony Stark's dad, uh, in there as a as a reference. Um, and then I pulled in a whole bunch of Marvel monsters from back in the days of the Marvel monster comic books. So I, I had a field day with it, and they they really let me run with it, which was super super fun. Well, you've sold me on that one. I'm going to read it when it comes <laughs> out. <laughs> Excellent. And you often weave 
multiple viewpoints in with your novels. And so I was curious, how do you outline that? And then how is outlining for your novels different from your graphic novel? Ooh, outlining is a big deal for me. And when I started as a writer, like out of college, I didn't outline anything. I just wrote by the seat of my pants and sat down and, and went for it. And I would realize as I reread my stuff that certain characters would fall away or certain themes would fall away, that, you know, things would shift in the middle of a book. And that's if I was lucky enough to finish something, because what would often happen is I would start a book and then we'd get maybe a third of the way in, maybe half of the way in, and then I wouldn't know what was happening next. And so it would just kind of stop writing it. And then I would start writing something new because, you know, when you're in the middle of a, of a book, that's when you get all your best ideas for something else. So uh, I, I realized that if I wanted to get a handle on this, I was going to have to think about my story ahead of time. And the big thing that pushed me over the edge for outlining uh, and made me a believer was when I wrote my first historical novel. Prior to that, I'd tried writing fantasy and I'd tried writing contemporary, hadn't sold anything. And then I got this idea. I, I read about the early days of baseball in Japan and how the baseball era overlapped this, the end of the, the beginning of the baseball era overlapped the end of the samurai era just barely in the Meiji period. And I was like, wait, you had you had kids running around with samurai swords and baseball bats. I got to write a book about that. And so I dove in and I ended up with a big binder full of research. And then I was like, how am I going to turn like two inches of paper research into a novel? Like, how do how do you do that? And I realized that that I couldn't just keep going back into that big binder and flipping through to find the notes that I needed. I was going to have to organize all that stuff somehow. So for the very first time, I outlined my book chapter by chapter. And then I went back through that big stack of notes one time. And every time I found a, a note about the, the samurai flower ranging, you know, I would put that into that scene. Or if I found something about what they ate in their school cafeteria, I put that in a, in a food scene. You know, so that when I read, was ready to sit down and write that book, I didn't just say, okay, I've got kind of a general idea for a book, go. And you know, it's, instead I said, I, I know exactly what I'm writing today. I could open up my notebook and say, this little, you know, these three paragraphs are what happens in this chapter. And all these notes underneath it are just the notes I need to tell this part of the story. And it was the first way, first time I had really broken down my historical research that way or, or ever done any historical research. And the first time I had outlined a book and um, that was the first book that I sold. It was Samurai Shortstop, my very first book. Once that was successful, I said, you know what? Maybe I've got something here. Maybe I should do that every time. And so even when I'm not doing historical research, like writing a Star Trek novel or writing a Captain America graphic novel, I still outline those. With fantasy for Star Trek or the fantasy novels I've written, there's a whole other world that exists, the world of the Federation or you know, a fantasy realm that you're writing about that you kind of have to keep track of in the same way that you do history. And, you know, there's some, there's some great quote and I'm going to butcher it, but like the um, history is, is, a, is another place. It's another, you know, it, it's a, it's another, it's another land that you could visit and, and the rules are different. The language is different. The clothes are different. Like everything is different. And so just like a fantasy novel. So I have to make notes about that and I organize everything. Um, I have a big board in my office and I have a, a grid drawn on it, it with, with string and I use note cards and I put note cards up for each chapter in my little grid for each of the different acts and, and different subsections of, of the book that I want. 
Um, I break a book up into eight parts and say like, I want this to happen in the beginning and this to happen in the next part and this to happen in the next part. And I plot the whole thing out before I ever write the very first word of it. I do it up on a big board so I can see it all very large while I'm building the story. And then I bring that over to my computer, type it up, and then put my notes into it when I'm when I'm ready to, to, to actually write it. So um, it's a long process. Uh, the research process for me usually takes a few months. It could take three to six months, depending on how much research and how many different times and how many different characters and, and places I'm writing about. Then once I've done all that research, I stop and I build my outline. That could take a whole month. And then once I've got the outline built, uh, then I take time to type it up and move all those notes over. And then I'm finally ready to write. All that time I spend before writing a book, gosh, sometimes that can be six months, nine months. It can be a year. But then once that all that pre-writing is done, usually I can write a book pretty quickly. I can write a first draft in about a month because I've done so much work to prepare myself to write. Then the longest part of it really kicks in, and that's the revision. That usually takes me like nine months to a year. That's my least favorite part. Just quick question, because you pointed out this board behind you. I see Admiral Akbar back there. Does that mean that we might be seeing an Admiral <laughs> Akbar book from you? Well, I got to tell you, if they ever come to me and say, do you have a Star Wars idea? Here's my Star Wars idea. And it's two words. And if you know Admiral Akbar, like you do, clearly, then maybe this will mean something to you. But because I write for kids and because I love Star Wars and Admiral Akbar is one of my all-time fave characters, the, the series idea is Ensign Akbar. That's all I got to say. It's Ensign Akbar um, <laughs> instead of Admiral Akbar. It's his beginning of his of his career. I would love to write that. I would love to write uh, about a lobster guy in the Rebel Army, the Rebel Navy, rather. That would be um, that would be an amazing gig. <laughs> I'll, I'll get in touch with my people over at, at Disney for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do what you can. Yeah. Now, now that everything is owned by Disney, maybe I got a chance. And I read somewhere where you find the plot part easy, but the characters more challenging. And some of your characters are based on true people. Sometimes they're the side character. Um, how do you decide when you're going to have a real person versus creating a character? And what is that process like? Plot is the easiest part of it for me. It's the part that comes naturally. I love thinking about story. When I watch movies or read books, I'm always sort of deconstructing the story in my head thinking where I would have gone with the story or what I like that they did with the story. So for me, the first place I go always is, is the story, the, the plot. I start thinking, if, uh, if I'm writing a book about D-Day, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, what's the journey of the character through the different events? What do I know about D-Day and what do I want to see and have happen to that character and, and have that character do? And then I often go back and decide who is that character and, and why are they here and what is their internal, you know, uh, what, what about them internally is going to grow and change through the story? How, is the, how are the external events going to affect them and vice versa? There are a lot of people I know who start completely opposite. They, meet, they start thinking about a character and then build a story around that character. Uh, I know some authors who work with um, tone uh, setting and atmosphere first, and they want to write a book that that is about time. They'll decide, you know, this is it's going to be about uh, about time, and then they they start building in a world that that revolves around that, and then they put a character in there. There's all kinds of different ways into a story. I gravitate to plot first, and for me, then that means that creating characters is often a challenge because 
I have to make sure that my character isn't just a cipher that I drop into there to run around and and do what the plot needs, right? I had a, a, an editor early in my career who, who said something that I've always remembered. She said it was in regard to one, one story I'd written in the Brooklyn Nine, which is nine different stories about nine different kids. And she said, this one's great, and this one's great, and this one's great. And she said, this one, though, she said, why couldn't you take any other kid and drop him into the story? What, what is it about this main character that makes this story unique to them? And I've always remembered that and I've tried to, to remember that, you know, if, if you take famous characters from one book and you drop them into another, the book should change. It should be a very different book. You know, if you took uh, if you took the character from one of my books and dropped them into a different book, they should they should make different choices and different things should happen because of who they are. I've always tried to remember that and, and to think about character in, in terms of who was this person before we meet them on page one? You know, the, the book should be, if you're if you're doing it right, the biggest thing that happens to your character in their entire life, right? That's why we're telling the story of, of this. But usually, most of us, we have some other things that happened to us in life that shaped who we are. And so my question I really ask about every character before I get into it is, what's one big thing that happened to my character before the events of this book? Now, it can't be bigger than the events of the book, because then why am I not writing about that event, right? But, you know, for example, in, in Refugee, Mahmoud has learned to, to be invisible before the book starts. He first, he's tried to stay away from bullies at school, but then there's been a civil war in his country. And he's learned that if you pull your hoodie down and you don't speak up, and you you just stay inside yourself and and you don't you know don't call attention to yourself that that's how you survive so then of course his personal journey is going to be an exterior journey leaving syria trying to get to germany as a refugee with his family but internally he's also realizing the only way that i can affect change for me and my family is if people see us i have to become visible i have spent my whole life trying to be invisible and now I've got to change who I am to become to become visible. So when I think about characters I try to match them to my story but also try to think about what shaped them before my book so that when we see them this book is going to to change them. It's going to take them and there be another cru- uh, be a real crucible. It, it, they may not have gone through a crucible like this. They shouldn't have uh, not that intensely. But, but how is this crucible going to change them and make them into the person that they will be for the rest of their lives? Yeah, it, character is tough for me and, and something that I am often like tweaking and rewriting through multiple drafts, trying to get that right. As much as I, as much as I think about it beforehand, I still seem to get it wrong most of the time and, and have to fix it in, in revisions. But that's, that's why you rewrite stuff. And I, I've enjoyed all of the characters I've met so far. So it's oh, well, not something you, you would notice. <laughs> <laughs> you you wouldn't you wouldn't know them to meet them in my first drafts probably. But <laughs> but uh, by the time by the time they get to the bookshelf, uh, they they've become uh, they've become three dimensional. <laughs> so uh, what goes into that editing process? I mean, what how much do you start with versus what gets cut and left on the editing floor? Ah, uh, it depends. Uh, some books have a whole lot left on the editing floor. 
Some books uh, don't. Uh, Project 1065 was kind of, I, I, I remember the, the rewriting of this one fondly because it didn't take a whole lot of rewriting. Like that one was kind of magic. It came together as I was outlining it and researching it. If I needed something, if I was like, man, it'd be cool if this was true. And then I would go and look it up and it was true. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could use that. So like sometimes you're when you're doing historical fiction, you have things you'd love to plug in and do. And then you go and you look it up and you're like, oh yeah, that that wouldn't have happened. I can't use that, you know? And then, but then at other times you're like, oh, maybe this happened. And you go back and you find it and you're like, oh, boom, I can use that. That's great. And, and the story goes the way you want it to. It felt like with Project 1065, all those things fell into place. And then, and I had some good character development right from the beginning that I really liked and, and fit. And there was a little tweaking still. I mean, it still took months of revision and, and a number of rewrites, you know, five, six, seven rewrites, but it wasn't, fundamental changes. It was me kind of getting all those those little things right. Um, then there have been other books that have been real challenges. The Allies, my book about D-Day, which I'm super proud of, and I love this book, um, but it started as a very different book. So my first idea was that I would write about uh, as many different perspectives on D-Day as possible, that I would have one major character who went through the whole thing, but that that along the way we would see brief little scenes, vignettes from other people connected to it. And when I was finished, I had 27 different characters that we saw stuff happen to. We saw them do stuff. And one character who made his way all the way through it. Okay, so my editor gets it and she reads it and she says, this is great, but we may need to knock the number of characters down. And I said, well, how many, like by how many? And she said, seven. And I said, okay, I can cut seven characters. And she said, no, I think there should just be seven characters at most. So the first draft of Allies had 27 point of view characters. And the, the final version, I think, has six, seven, something like that. And the poor guy who was the main character in the first draft, his name was Langford. He doesn't even, sh I, I don't even think, well, he's not the main character in, in Allies now. I took one of the other stories that I realized was way better than his story. And said, I'm going to take this guy and I'm going to get put him at center stage and I'm going to make him the main character who works his way through. And this other guy, he didn't make the cut. And like he'd been the he'd been the lead actor, you know, in the first draft. And then he got he got axed. And I think maybe I, I still need to go back and look at this. I think there's a cameo for him in the third act at the very end where the main character like says hello to some guy. And he's like, oh, my name's Langford just because I felt really bad about cutting that character out. So I put him in at the end. Um, but um, no, sometimes, sometimes it's a whole rewrite. Like I usually don't, I know authors who have changed uh, a whole book from first person to, to third person from first to, to second draft. Uh, I don't know that I've ever done that, but I definitely have changed the main character. I've changed uh, you know, the, the story of D-Day is still the story of D-Day. It's not going to change, but how I view it, how I present it, that that can be very different each way. So um, I've I, I've had some books that were just like pulling teeth. They were just, they were so hard to write uh, and to get right. Um, and then some that just, just, just worked uh, great right from the start. Uh, and then there are times like Refugee is kind of in between. It, it really worked great. Uh, once I had the idea for the three stories and how to connect the characters. And like, I did have that before I started writing. I, I, a lot of people asked me, like, did you come up with that as you were writing 
no, no, no. For me, I wouldn't have started writing that book unless I could have found a way to connect it. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to write a book with three short stories in it or three novellas. I wanted one book that felt like a, like a novel. So I had that going into it, but, uh, but in, in terms of each of those characters journeys, for example, um, with Mahmoud, his story was not, it was always going to end in Germany, but I, he was going to make it all the way to Sweden and then come back to Germany when they were turned away in Denmark. And because that, that was a part of a lot of refugee journeys that I had read, that they, were, that they would try to get to someplace like Sweden, but there were countries in between that would take you off of a train and send you back to the previous country that you came from. And, and originally, they ended up in Germany just because they tried to get as far as Sweden and then were pushed back. And then I realized, no, I, I, I didn't want that, that, that false victory and loss right at the end. I wanted, I wanted it to, to feel like we've gone through this really difficult third act situation, and then we just get the reward. We get the reward of being in Germany and ending up there and, and finding a home. Spoiler alert, sorry. And, um, you know, so, so there, were, there were things like that where it was like, no, this can be, this can be simplified or this can be streamlined. There's a lot of that that goes on with me just trying to, to make sure I don't, I don't hit the same beat three times. You know, it, it's tempting when you're writing historical fiction, especially as a, as a fan of history, as I am, to want to put it all in there. You just want to throw everything you've learned into a book. And then you realize you've got like a 500 page book and nobody will read that. And you have to cut a whole lot of that out. <laughs> and that reminded me that Refugees Ending totally cried. I'll be honest, but it was like that cathartic. It was a good cry and it's totally worth it. And everyone needs to read it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, and kind of with that, you do not sugarcoat real life, even though you have a younger audience, bad things happen. Characters you get attached to, they, they might die. Um, your readers are given the full story arc of things that could really happen in history or what are happening now in the case of Two Degrees. Not every character has a happy ending. So what is the importance of being honest in the gravity of various situations that your characters find themselves in? Yeah, and I appreciate you, you pointing that out. It's something that I, that I really work for. And it's kind of a, a discussion that my editor and I have every time. How far can I go? The one thing I would never do is, is write a book that is hopeless. I believe there's always hope. I believe there's always help. Uh, and, and I and I always want to show main characters may make bad decisions. They may choose not to reach out and take a hand that's offered and help. But I don't ever want my characters or my readers to feel like that hand isn't there from somebody. And it's certainly not everybody in in refugee they are turned away and and, and not helped and sometimes actively um, worked against plenty of times because that's the way the real world is. And and I think that's the that's what it boils down to. I want my books to feel real. I want there to be verisimilitude and and um, and kids know, they know when you're sugarcoating stuff, they know when you're not telling them the whole truth because they know that that nothing can be, you know, uh, nothing can be all candy and roses. It, it can't be it, it can't be awesome all the time. And uh, that that life is difficult and uh, is, is challenge more is challenging for some kids more than others. Um, but everybody goes through loss and everybody goes through sadness. And for me, it's, it's important to show that so that the books feel real. The other thing is also, it's really important to me to be true to history. 
if I'm writing about the Holocaust and 3 million Jewish people died, 500,000 of whom were children, if I write a book like Prisoner B3087 or Refugee and Joseph's Story and I don't show loss, then how honest am I being about what happened? If I'm telling a story about uh, Cuban refugees who are going from Cuba to the United States in the 90s on board a raft, and every one of them survives, when the statistics say that three out of every five people who made that journey died at sea, how honest am I being, right? So it's always me trying to balance the truth of the situation against, of course, who my audience is, and that is middle grade readers. And so I don't want to I don't want to throw the entire weight of the world on these kids' shoulders. I do want them to be kids, and I want them to have uh, happy childhoods. Um, but I also want them to understand the gravity of these situations. And middle schools, when when we start to really get interested in that sort of thing, it's when we start to look outside of our home, our church, our school, our neighborhood, and we start to see the larger world outside. And I want my books to be an incredible resource for that. I want them to be a place where kids can start to see more of the world and start to form their own opinions and think about these larger situations in a pretty safe environment. You know, like the, all of this stuff is just happening on the page and they can put it down. They can skip over it. You know, it's not even like a TV show or a movie where you'd have to turn it off or close your eyes. Like if you're watching a TV show, you see it. And, and I can make choices about what I show on the on the page. The one allowance I make be, because of my audience, uh, I, 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 would, I write the same kind of book I would for adults with plot, with characters. Uh, the, the one uh, real big allowance that I make though is that I, um, I don't show a, a, as much of the graphic nature of some of the stuff as I would for adults. So um, in, in Prisoner B3087, Jack sees a kid who comes out of the medical tent and says, they operated on me. Like, and I wanted to, to get in there, the medical experimentation that was done on the prisoners. Um, we don't see it. We don't have to experience it. We don't have to feel it. And so in that way, it, it's held at a distance. It's an introduction for kids. And then if they are mature enough, or if as they get older, if they if as they get older and they want to learn more, they can. If they're mature enough, they can fill in those gaps. And if they're immature, and I don't mean this in a negative way, if they just aren't there yet, then they just say, "Okay, I under I read that, I process it, I'm moving on." You know, uh, we all do this as young. We all did this as mm -hmm. young readers. There were things in books that we come back to as adults and we're like, "Oh man, I did not get that subtext." You know, uh, you, you reread Peter Pan and there's so much in there for adults that you don't hear or see as kids and something like that. So anyway, I try to to limit that. Um, and, and I don't use um, I don't use a, a, any language that might keep it out of a classroom, um, that sort of thing. I, I would definitely put language in there. I would I put profanity in there if I were writing for adults and I don't do that for kids. Um, but but those are basically the only things that I that I do differently. Otherwise, I write the same story I would have written for adults. I think it gives respect to your readers as well. Yeah. And you were a former um, eighth grade English teacher. So you're, you knew Yeah, for a hot minute, you know I was an eighth grade English teacher. Yeah, yeah I, um, I, I, I have got an, um, uh, an English education master's degree and uh, taught eighth grade for a short time. Then my daughter was born. 
And my wife and I had to decide if one of us was going to stay home and take care of her, or if we we're going to send her off to daycare because we both had day jobs. And my wife, in words that will live in infamy in my household, said, you've been wanting to be a writer since you were a kid. You've been working on it in your evenings and your weekends and your summer's home because I was then teaching. She said, why don't you stay home, be a stay-at-home dad and see if you can sell your first book. And uh, so I did. And for the beginning of it, I was more of a dad than I was a writer. Uh, if you've got kids, you know, that's kind of your number one job when they're babies, especially. But while my daughter was napping or while I could hand her off to my wife, who also worked part time from home, she she worked full time, but part of her time was at home and part of it was on the road. So while she was at home, she could she could nurse, you know, Joe and, and that sort of thing. And I would run down to my office and and work away at a book. And that's when to get back to the outlining having an outline to open up to the next page and say, this is what I'm writing today. I've got two hours go. That really helped instead of sitting down and saying, okay, oh my gosh, where am I, where am I in the story and what's happening now? Because you could spend two hours just figuring that out and then your time's up. So anyway, I was a stay-at-home dad at first. I, um, I wrote Samurai Shortstop while I was a stay-at-home dad and that was the first book that I sold. I sold it before my right before my daughter turned a one-year-old. So I can, I can look back at the beginning of my professional career, and it's just about uh, as old as my daughter, who is now in her sophomore year, junior year. Oh, my gosh. We just took her back to school. That's right. Junior year of college. I am a, a proponent of gaming, and I love gaming. I love it. Just started our family, uh, just started a, a Pathfinder with with my oldest, and I know that you are, are a gamer as well. So how has has writing helped you be a better DM or has being a DM <laughs> helped you be a better writer? Well, so I, 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 I do. I, I have a regular D&D group uh, that meets Wednesday nights and we have for, gosh, maybe this group I've been with uh, maybe five, six years at this point. And, uh, and I played when I was in college and I played when I was in grade school but much more as an adult now, I've I've been a player and and a, and not always a DM. I'm I've been DMing. Uh, my our first our first session zero for the new game that I was going to run for my group. Um, we met in person, and then the following week we all had to stay home because it was the beginning of the pandemic. And so uh, we have been an online game ever since uh, with online maps and all that stuff. But thankfully, we had been together for a long time and we really had great connections and, and we were able to just transfer all of that online to, to be safe. And I've DM'd uh, online for my group uh, through through the pandemic. And uh, I think that I think that it's maybe the 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 way that it's worked is I think being a writer has made me a, a better DM mo more than the other way around. I think it's helped both. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that Sarah and I were talking about is character. And I think that one of the things that D&D's helped me with is character creation, because that's such a fundamental part of role playing is coming up with a character and then not just creating a character who can bash something over the head with a mace or, or cast a spell, but actually has a story, you know, actually has a, an origin, a background, um, and then, and then hooks and ties into the, into the larger story. And also, uh, when you're creating a character for a role-playing game, you want to leave open-ended stuff for your dungeon master, your game master, to be able to to add elements to your life story. You know, to say, oh, this long-lost father of yours that you haven't seen in forever shows up and and throws a wrench into the works. And it's been a really fun process of 
of collaboration. Now, that's what role playing is. It's it's a collaborative improv game, and I love that. And uh, so it's helped me in character creation. But I think that my writing skills, I hope, have led to to a richer storytelling and and, and story building as a as a DM. Uh, just last night, last night was my group. Uh, we're recording this uh, on a Thursday, and just last night we had this really cool symmetry where. Uh, one NPC, one non-player character got a, a valuable item back that, that was only sentimental value, right? It didn't have any monetary value. Uh, and, and the characters in, in the, the, the real players had held on to this. They didn't tell the NPC they had it and because they were worried about what kind of effect it would have on this, on this character. But they finally gave it back last night and it was this really profound moment. And then I had already plotted as the DM to have another NPC like the, get a, get an item back. And like, I couldn't have planned that. It's the kind of thing I would plan in a novel is to have that kind of parallels, you know, that, that kind of symmetry. And because of the way the game works, you get, you get moments of magic like that where the players do stuff you don't expect. And there's this real nice synchronicity to things in general. I don't like surprises when I'm writing, when I'm writing a book, my characters don't talk to me. I tell them what to do and they do it. When you're role-playing, you can't do that. That's called railroading and nobody enjoys that. So I've had to, I've had to shut that part of me down as a DM and, and let the story go where it's going to go as the players build it. But I think it's also helped me be able to build a rich background. Well, that outlining stuff I talked about with Sarah as well, I I have I use the same kind of, of outlining for my Dungeons and Dragons game as I do for a novel. So I have all this research and all these different files put away in my computer and uh, and I keep track of that. And so I have characters who show up we haven't seen in two years and boom, there they are. Whereas if I was writing by the seat of my pants like before, I would just just forgotten who they were and, and not kept track of them. So I, I think there's been a nice balance there. And um, to add to that, I have a sculpture background and I saw that you have family cosplay. It looks epic and amazing in every way. What materials do you enjoy using? What was your favorite costume? And are you planning one currently? <laughs> uh, yeah, I love to make costumes. I haven't done it as much because of course, with the pandemic, we haven't gone to, to stuff like Dragon Con. Dragon Con was our big one in Atlanta uh, over Labor Day weekend that we would go all through my daughter's uh, childhood and, and we would go as a family, you know, we would make hall costumes where we might be superheroes or we might have Jedi costumes or something like that is that we could just wear. Although I got to tell you, I don't know how the Jedi walked through a bar or a crowded, like, uh, you know, uh, like a market or something because everybody steps on your cloak. I, 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 maybe, maybe that's why Mace Windu had a shorter one. I don't know. Uh, don't, don't go into a crowd with a Jedi cloak on is all I'm saying. Um, it's the same. I think it's the same principle as the Incredibles and saying, don't wear capes, but, uh, we would, we had a ton of fun making up hall costumes and, and wearing those around, but also entering the big masquerade competition. That was really our bread and butter. We would spend months ahead of time working on these costumes. My favorite thing to do was to build the foam. I like to build the structure of the stuff. And as a, as a sculptor, that's really awesome. I, I never studied this. I never, you know, I've, I've never worked with clay in that way, but I loved taking a piece of foam and cutting it and shaping it to get it to be what I wanted. And the funny thing about foam is uh, what I learned, is, yeah, I use like a, like a furniture foam almost. 
Mm-hmm. And the, the easiest way to cut that is with a turkey knife. Like one of those that has a double blade that you run with electric, it goes, and I would just sit there and sort of shave away pieces of foam and, and experiment with it. A couple of my favorites, well, we did a, maybe my favorite was a huge Totoro that we did. So we love my neighbor Totoro, uh, the Miyazaki movie. And my daughter was really young then. And so she was about the size of Satsuki, the, the girl in, in the movie. So she dressed up as Satsuki and I was in this 16 foot tall Todro costume so that it would work with her scale. I had it up on our dining room table for months and I started by building this big armature inside that would hold it up and then basically like a hoop skirt, put these uh, hoops all the way down it and covered it with fabric. It was quite an elaborate thing. And then I realized I had to get it out of the house and put it in some kind of a vehicle to get it to Atlanta. That was a challenge. We had to rent a van just to get it to Atlanta and it could barely fit through doors. That was a lesson learned. Make sure that you're Costume will actually fit through a door before you make it. Um, we did Space Ghost, uh, Zorak, and Brack one year. I was uh, loved those. Yeah, I, I, and um, I would build the anything that was kind of puppet with foam and and sticks and 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 wiring. Uh, my wife is, uh, is fantastic at doing fabric design. Uh, th- she does this for a living now. She she's now a, a designer who who will design stuff for quilts and, and patterns, and 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 people can buy those and make them themselves. Uh, but she's always been great at that. And so she would make the the clothing that would go over the thing that I built. So we were a great team. I could build this, the underneath and she could make it, you know, give it clothing. Um, or, and she made all of our Jedi cloaks and everything. So, um, but I loved making the, the props for the lightsabers and all that stuff. So we had a good uh, crossover skill set. One that I, I think... I think we've given all of those skills to my daughter who can now do it all. Uh, she's great at, at building things and sewing things. So... Uh, she's off making her own costumes for herself now. In the works, uh, well, uh, you know, Stephen pointed out, I, I, I'm a big Akbar fan. I have a uh, an Admiral Akbar head uh, that I that I started working on right at the beginning of the pandemic. I've got the head finished. I now need to work on some some lobster arms. But uh, yeah, Akbar is my next project, it's my current project. Amazing. Nice. One of the things that you talked about earlier that I wanted to jump back to, because it is very important to me, is that you talk about how all of your books have a hopeful, you, you want to keep that hope alive in it. Um, so here we are, we're, we're coming up on this new book where it's not so much where it's, it's, you know, something that we've dealt with in the past. It's an ongoing fight. What kind of tips, what kind of uh, advice do you give us to help keep that hope alive in the in these horrific and terrifying times i know right it's just just when you think it can't get any worse it does you know i i think that there's always something to fight for there's always people that you love there's always a place that you love or uh you know there's always a life that that you want to fight for and i try to show that as well i try to show not just the bad stuff in my books but the things that that you want to, why you want to keep going and why you want to make things better. And, you know, uh, in, in two degrees, Akira, my girl who is uh, surviving the California wildfires, uh, a big part of that is the giant sequoias and her love for, for riding the trails up through the Sierra Nevada uh, and seeing the giant sequoias. And I try to linger on those moments so we understand what it is that, that we could lose but also what it is that we're fighting for, that we're trying to preserve. So along with, with never wanting to, sh- to have a book that's hopeless, I would also want, not want to have a book that's joyless. You know, even 
even at the darkest times for the refugees on each of those journeys, they, they have fun. Their, their families sing or dance or, or, or celebrate a, a wedding or a birthday. You know, I, I, I want to make sure that it's not all doom and gloom because that's not life either. Just like making sure that I show the, the, the rough stuff in life, I have to make sure that I, that I give time to show the joy in life. Um, otherwise, I don't know what the point is, you know, like it, why, why would we want to fight for this if it was all doom and gloom? Because it's not. It's not. Um, there's there's tons of times, even when life is very hard, when we find joy and we find things to celebrate, you know, new births or weddings or that sort of thing. So I always try to make a point of working those in as a counterpoint to all the darkness. I was I fell down a, a web rabbit hole the other day when I came across a uh, article about the uh, the Thwait Glacier, what they call the Doomsday Glacier. That yeah, that they're, that they're saying we just got to watch it for the next three years because it may or may not kill us all. <laughs> you know? Right, this glacier breaks <laughs> off, melts, raises the sea level. You know, then we're all gone. Or you know, I mean, and there's all kinds of stuff like that. You know, the runaway greenhouse effect can is a scary, scary thing, and you you can live in fear. Uh, I, I often do, but <laughs> you know, you 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 can live in fear, and that can control you. Um, or uh, you can live a, a blissful, ignorant life, and and then not fix anything. That's also equally bad. And I, I think that what we have to find is that balance where we're able to stop and say, "I'm going to play a video game tonight, and that's okay." You know, and tomorrow I'm going to worry about the world and do something about it. You know, sometimes you'll see people online who are like, you know, oh, you know. Uh, I see you're you're worried about this. You know, we're, you're doing something about it every second of every day, and it's like, no, we can't. You you can't. Only saints can do something about it every second of every day, and and bless the saints in the world. That's great. But most of us are just regular human beings, and we have to balance the the care and empathy for the world and, and our and our fellow human beings with with ourselves and and what it mean what it takes for us to to be okay. We have to make that space for ourselves, that mental space for us to be okay. And that's a challenge. It can be really overwhelming, especially when we've got cell phones with, that show us the world in our pocket and you can doom scroll all night long. You said you can go down a rabbit hole, you know, and turn it off before you go to bed, turn it off when you watch television or with your family or read a book, like make space for yourself. Don't turn it off forever because then things can get bad and out of control and, and we're not fixing them. Right. But but we have to we have to find the times that we do engage and then we have to find the other times when we say this is this is time just for me and my family and, and, and for ourselves to to relax, uh, to enjoy and, and to remember what it is we're fighting for tomorrow when I turn my phone back on. We are a library podcast. So how have libraries impacted your life? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, my mom would take me to the Cedar Bluff Library when I was a kid in Knoxville and check out books there. And I remember the there was a there was a romance to it, you know, like the the feel of the plastic, the smell of the books. Um, I was particularly fond when I was very small uh, of the Beatrix Potter books because of the size. They felt like they were kid sized, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I love that. I've always remembered that the trim size matters for little kids. But it was a place to explore too. They had um, old movies that you could get on film that we that I would put into a, a, a like put the actual film into something and crank it and watch the film. So it, it, we even had like multimedia back in the seventies, you know, and to for me to check out early eighties. But they were places for me to explore. They were places for me to to explore whatever I was interested in, and that's been fantastic. That was a fantastic thing for me when I was a kid. Then uh, as a teacher, 
it was an amazing resource. And I tried to make sure that I took my class to the library as much as possible so that they could be there and, 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 and give them assignments where they, they also were encouraged to explore and, and to, to find books and to, to collect information from books. Uh, I love that process now as a writer. Um, my, my absolute you know, favorite part of, of all that planning process is to start checking out books from the library and bring back a huge stack. I get books through interlibrary loan, which is an amazing resource that a lot of people don't know about or don't use. You know, I, I for um, Grenade, I was writing about Marines uh, in Okinawa, and I wanted a particular book that was like a history of one Marine unit. And they had a copy of it at a at a library in Portland, Oregon, and, and my library service got it for me. I think $5 is all it cost to, for me to have this book for a month to read it and, and, and to get information from it. it was amazing. A lot of people ask me, do you travel to the places that you go to? Do you do a lot of interviews? I do that when I can, but for the most part, no. What My books are built from books in the library. I read other people's books. I read nonfiction. I read personal accounts from people who lived during that time or, or during that event. And I cobble those together. I also use a lot, uh, if I'm writing about the present day, I, I need a lot of articles. I need a lot of magazine articles and newspaper articles. And I use library to find those as well. Libraries were formative for me as a kid. And they're essential to me now in the work that I do. And of course, I do love, as Stephen said, going in and seeing a shelf full of my books now at the library. That's pretty special. So, uh, and, and Scholastic makes them all look alike. So you can see them from, from a mile away, which I think is pretty fun. No, uh, libraries have, have played a, a huge part in, in my life. I was on a first name basis with my middle school and high school librarian. Was, she was the same person, was a small school, Tina Litherland, and, and was still friends with her, have remained friends with her after uh, I graduated, long after I graduated. So anyway, yeah, uh, yay librarians, uh, you guys are awesome. And my favorite conferences to go to, frankly, are the state librarian conferences. You know, here in North Carolina, ours is called NC SLAMA, NC SLMA, and, and I, um, I, I'm going this fall. And, and it's the first, one of the first times I'll be doing an event like that since uh, the pandemic uh, began. So I'm eager to get back and see a lot of old friends. I'll have fun with that. That sounds awesome. Cool. We are a family-friendly podcast, and so we play a game here that I'm not allowed to say the name that most people know it as, but Sarah has asked me to rename it as Kiss Mary Ditch. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> so, so I'm going to give you three categories that I'm All disguising right. by something. You've just got to choose one of those, and then inside that category, I will give you three things that you either have to like, love, or and get rid of. All right. So yeah, so it's like, love, or get rid of it. Yep. So my the right. categories you're going to get to choose from are shaking spears at nothing, not too distant future, and mazes and monsters. Hmm. I, I like all these and I can catch references. Let's do not too distant future. I, I, I like where this might go. In the not too distant future. Next Sunday, AD. It is indeed. So we're going to choose between the three. Mike. Joel and Jonah. Ah, okay. Oh my gosh. For, for those who are not aware, this is a reference to Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. The, the, these were poor janitors that have been sent up into space to watch <laughs> horrible, horrible movies and they can't control it. All right. Boy, oh boy. Um, I don't want to get rid of any of these guys. First of all, that's not fair. Uh, I really like all of them. But if I, if I got to do it, I got to do it. So uh, I will say, uh, love Joel. Joel was my first, uh, it's like you're saying your first doctor. He was my, my first uh, test subject uh, on the satellite of love in, in MST3K. 
he's probably my all-time favorite. I actually have a red jumpsuit costume that I made to look like Joel, uh, and and have, have loved seeing him come back on the new ones that they that they make. I will I will say uh, like for Jonah, I really like Jonah Ray Rodriguez, and, and and I I think his episodes are really really funny, and I love that they're very modern. I love that you know Joel's are great but they were done a lot of them back in the nineties and there are really dated references to some of them, which I get because I was, you know, uh, I was uh, uh, alive and well back in the nineties, but, but Jonah's are, are, have a lot of modern references and really keen social commentary. So uh, as I am not, a, I, I'm, I do not dislike Mike, but I'm going to get rid of Mike out of that list just because of the, of that list. Uh, he's my third favorite. But I also love Mike, especially because Mike was like the the side character in so many great Joel episodes, uh, you know, Torgo and that sort of thing. So um, I love Mike. But if I have to pick three, if I have to rank them, love Joel, like Jonah, get rid of Mike. Sorry, man. To date myself back in my high school Spanish class, we had to do a, a presentation about words using anatomy. And so I, I did my basis off of the, uh, the the Patty Duke episode of Mystery Science Theater, where I did the identical cousin songs <laughs> as I went through the, the body parts. Nice. <laughs> that's that's a deep cut right there. That's a very deep cut. Um, to give you an idea, Shaking Spears at Nothing, we would you have written two items, uh, Something Wicked and uh, Something Rotten, which were right. adaptations of Shakespeare's. So I would have made you uh, choose between some Shakespeare adaptations. Uh, I, I guess that's where Shakespeare <laughs> that one was going. So Hamlet versus Lion King, Romeo and Juliet, mm. West Side Story, and Tempest and Forbidden Planet, you would have had to rank. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Those and, are all great. Um, just offhand, Forbidden Planet and Tempest. Tempest is my favorite Shakespeare play, and I love Forbidden Planet. So I, I think I'd have to go with that number one, love. I, I know I, we've, we're probably not supposed to play it, but uh, real quickly, uh, love Tempest and, and Forbidden Planet, like uh, Hamlet and uh, Lion King. And what was the third one? Uh, Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story. Oh, yeah. Also a fantastic uh, pairing. But uh, but of those, my, my absolute faves, though, are Tempest and and Hamlet and those adaptations. Yeah. And Mazes of Monsters would have made you rank because, as I said, I'm an old school gamer myself here. So you would have had to choose uh, Dark Sun, Greyhawk and Spelljammer. Oh, man. Well, uh, so I got to say, uh, I, I, I won't go through the whole ranking, but I will say that uh, I own Star Frontiers, uh, the OG box set that came out a long time ago that was sort of pre-Spelljammer, Spelljammer, and that my D&D group with a different DM, uh, one, one of the other guys who plays, took Spelljammer and reworked it for 5e so that we could play it uh, two years ago. And now, of course, D&D has done all that work for us uh, and, and just re released Spelljammer. And I've got a, a different group that I play with, and we're just getting ready to start Spelljammer. So I'm pretty excited. I am uh, an auto gnome. I am a robot gnome. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And I can use this to segue into something that I've, I've been told I have to say. Uh, my son is currently playing a cleric and he was enjoying it, but he's only picked it because nobody else wanted to play a healer. <laughs> yeah, man. If somebody always gets stuck playing the cleric or at least somebody who has a few spells, uh, the, so props, props to your son. Tell him <laughs> he took one for the team, um, and that they should give him all the gold. <laughs> he, he would agree with that statement as well. 
And my last question for you is, um, what are you currently reading or watching? Oh, we just finished The Sandman on Netflix. Ooh, boy, is that good stuff. I loved that. Um, we, we finished that up before my daughter went back to school so she could watch it with us. Uh, we, I didn't watch nearly as much television while she was home because we would go out to a board game cafe, which we really love on an almost daily basis and play board games and that sort of thing. We probably got about an hour of TV in a day, uh, which is a healthy amount. <laughs> um, now I'm watching a little bit more that she's back to school. Um, my wife and I just started uh, dipping into Ms. Marvel on Disney+. Plus. Love it. Super cute. Love that character from the comics. And I, I think the, uh, the casting is really great in that show. But we're really behind. We haven't even watched like Ted Lasso season two. Like we're that far behind. Um, so we've got a, a few gems waiting on us. Always love mysteries. We, we burned through Shetland. That was our big favorite uh, for murder mysteries. We, my wife and I love murder mysteries. So um, that one, we can't wait for a new season to come out. Reading. So I'm reading for an award right now, and I am not allowed to say what award it is yet. Like when the, when the award is announced and the nominees are announced, then it'll be like, and here are the judges, you know. Uh, but I think it's so that people can't like lobby us and stuff like that. So it makes sense. So a lot of my reading is based around that right now. We'll say it's a kid's book award, which I'm really, I mean, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't. So I, I've been doing a lot of reading for that. That is stuff I'm interested in, or I wouldn't have chosen to do this, uh, but not always the thing I would have picked off the shelf next. Actually, we have a really extensive library from all the books that we've bought, you know, as, as I'm sure you guys have tons and tons of books that you haven't read. Right. Um, so uh, what a few years back, my wife and I sort of instituted this idea of reading around the library. We have all of our books separated out by genre. And so we would read like science fiction and then a graphic novel and then nonfiction and then, you know, adult fiction. And then we had middle grade and mystery and young adult. We have them all separated out. We kind of work our way around because I'm reading now for an award, I'm, a lot of my reading is thrown off. Like I'm, I'm reading stuff as it comes in and I'm reading all, you know, one thing rather than a variety of things. So I'm looking for, I, I do love variety. I love reading. I love so many different genres and different ages uh, that, that books are written for. So I look forward to getting back to that too. I've enjoyed what I'm doing now, but um, so I can't talk about some of the books. What am I, am I reading anything Oh, I am reading a book that's not for an award right now because I'm going to be doing a, a, an event with her. Uh, Stacey McAnulty, who is also a North Carolina writer that I really like. Uh, her books are great. She's written fiction. She's written nonfiction. She has a new nonfiction book coming out called Save the People. And it is about all the extinction events that have happened on the earth from prehistory until the present and then and also possibly things that might happen to us. So um, she covers all the extinction events that happened in in you know uh, up through the dinosaurs and beyond. She talks about the asteroid you know that hit and and different uh, asteroids that have hit the Earth and and volcanoes that have erupted and super volcanoes and that sort of thing. And she talks about plagues that have hit the Earth. It's all really fun stuff. Um, and, and I say that a little jokingly. I will say. Because I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this event with Stacy. We're going to be at, uh, at, a, at a book festival here in North Carolina in a couple of weeks. A question I do have for her is, I, I figure she wrote this over the pandemic. Because I wrote Two Degrees over the pandemic. And I got to tell you, choosing to write a book about the death of the earth during the pandemic is probably not the healthiest choice in the world. 
So she and I both decided we would tackle into the world fiction as it seemed like the world was in around us. That, that was a tough time, let me tell you. But the books are done. Uh, her book is great. Save the People by Stacey McNulty. That's what I'm currently reading. Definitely a big shout out for that one. Wish I could tell you about some of the others. I'm not even allowed to like, even though I can't tell people what I'm reading for, I can't even, if I find one that I love, like take a picture, like say, go on, go on Twitter and be like, love this book. You guys got to read this, which really kills me because I like to do that for other people and their books. It's tough. It'll be cool to be a part of the award, but in the future, I think I'd rather read for myself and be able to, to crow about books that I love along the way. I have a friend that reads for ALA and the amount of books she has to read. I don't know how she balances all the reading. I've looked at her stacks and stacks and stacks. I'm like, I'm impressed. (laughs) Yeah. At least if you read for an award that's just one genre, then you just get a percentage of it. If you read for one of the ALA awards or something, we're just like the best book for kids that year. Oh my gosh, I cannot imagine the boxes that get delivered. I mean, you get some good stuff, but you'd be inundated. She's, she's right. great at it. Yeah, but I would not be able to do that. <laughs> I'm a slow reader too. That's what that's what really hurts. I'm a really slow reader. So I have to um I have to really make set set time aside for those things. Audiobooks help. Oh, sorry. I'm just was, interrupting you all fine, over the fine. place. I was gonna say you've also got a coworker who used to do the ju- judging for the Eisners. So I mean we have Oh yeah, oh. she did that. Yeah. Wow. That would be very cool. Really cool. Yeah. yeah. Now I can read a graphic novel a little faster than I can read a book, uh, a mm-hmm. prose novel. But um, which is good. That, that's a drawback to writing them. You know, a kid can go, my, my daughter can go into a bookstore or a library and sit down and read an entire graphic novel before I'm ready to walk out the door. I'll be like, are you ready? And she's like, I'm like, I'll be like, like, do you want to buy that? Or do you want to check it out? She's like, no, I just finished it. I'm like, oh no, no. Like if we're in a bookstore, I'm like, you can't, you can't just like, we need to buy it. Like if you're, you know, if you just consumed the whole thing in a library, that's fine. But in a bookstore, oh my gosh. So, um, but it, it takes so long to make a graphic novel, to write it. And then for the illustrator, it takes even longer because that's a huge amount of work. And then kids can read them in like a sitting. <laughs> it's, really, it's, a, it's something that the industry is actually struggling with. How do we meet this incredible demand for graphic novels uh, when they take so long and, and, and so much time and money to make? Yeah, that's a challenge. I, I I I sympathize with what you're saying, but my wallet disagrees with you heavily. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm with you. I, I I spend so much money on comics and graphic novels. Um, I'd I'd buy more of them if they came out faster. It's a good problem to have. It's great to have people who want to read stuff. Uh, that's a really good problem to have. My youngest is a big Dave Pilkey fan, so Dog oh, Man yeah. and Cat Kid. So it's like, here's your new one, and it's like ten minutes later, it's like, okay, I'm like, how can you be done? That cost. Right. Yeah. It costs like 12 bucks. Read it again. <laughs> Sit and read it again. No, I know. And my, but that's the thing. My daughter uh, would reread them and I reread my, my graphic novels. I, I, um, I'm a big fan of Starman from DC, uh, which came out when I was in college. And um, that's a series that, that I go back to. That's a run that I go back to and reread every few years. So there, I definitely have my favorites. My, after we watched Sandman, my daughter was like, can I take your Sandman graphic novels with me to college? And I was like, no. <laughs> there's certain things you hold on to and, and listen i've seen the way books come back from your dorm room no <laughs> if you you mentioned you were a mystery fan if you uh dark winds that was a recent one that came out that mm. was like a uh a tony hillerman based one that is uh that's really good i would recommend cool. that and, awesome uh, i will check it out 
what we do in the shadows is another one I'm highly, always highly recommending as the the, the comedy to, to, to keep you happy throughout the. <laughs> my, I watched the film and I still haven't seen the TV show. My daughter says the TV show is very, very funny though. It's uh, to me, it's better than the, the, the that's film. what I've heard. That's what I've heard. It is even better than the film. Yeah. Less dry. Yeah. The movie is pretty dry. <laughs> so as we kind of wrap up here, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I got the two degrees coming out soon. Cap coming out. Uh, the book I'm working on now is uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, that looks like it'll be for what year is it? 2022, 2023. I think it'll be uh, spring of 2024. That's the idea. Um, I have also written a graphic novel version of Refugee. And uh, we are currently trying to find the right artist for it. So uh, I'm excited about those two projects that are coming down the road. That Very sounds nice. awesome. My uh, grandfather-in-law was a Pearl Harbor survivor, so we oh wow we did that last Hawaii tour with him. Oh, very cool! Very got cool. To, got to see up close the out the, the remains of what's still there, and, and yeah, the, the Arizona, and, yeah, yeah, and the Utah. I think are both still there, and of course, um, a lot of the Fort Island uh, is is as it was then. So well, that's uh, that's that, I, I envy you that trip. He, he took us to the barracks where he's showing us the bullet holes that are still in the wall. Yeah. About, you know, yeah. the horrific things that he was encountering of friends and stuff. I'm like, oh man, this, you know, bless you. Yeah. Sir. Yeah. Right. No, my, and my grandfather uh, was on a ship that was stationed in, um, uh, in Pearl Harbor, but was out of the Harbor. He was on a repair ship and uh, um, ended up uh, of course, coming back and having his hands full after the attack. But uh yeah, just incredible stuff that these folks went through. We're we're losing the last generation uh, of of survivor or of people who fought and and lived through World War II. So uh, more important than ever. That's so great that you got to have that memory and and that experience of going back there uh, and having a, a person who was actually there be your tour guide. That's astounding. Yes. Well, thank you very much for uh, for giving us your time here today. It has been a, a pleasure. I had a great time. I appreciate you guys having me on the podcast. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan, for joining us on Unstacked. Two Degrees will be available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out his website, alangratz.com. That is A-L-A-N-G-R-A-T-Z.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.